Today, it's all about photographic timing with Canon Explorer of Light, Damien Strohmeyer on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Steve Brazel, your host, and this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all the stories and challenges that happen in between. And I've got a great show lined up for you today. Before we get into it, I do want to remind you that with this show and all the shows, if you want to see the blog post I wrote about my guest, a small sample gallery of their work, all you got to do is head over to the website at BehindTheShot.tv. As well, this podcast is available wherever you get your podcast in either an audio only or a video format. And if where you get your podcast does not support video, that's okay. Just head on over to YouTube. And when you're there, if you like what we're doing, please head down, hit subscribe, click the bell, give us a thumbs up, all of that type stuff. It definitely helps with the algorithm. One thing I want to remind you of as well before I bring my guest on is the workshop that we've got coming up in October. It's the Wanderer's Photographic Workshop. And the best way to, to explain this or how I've been explaining it, because it's, it's kind of complex, is a chance for you to experience the people, the history, the music, and the food of a destination city all in one photo workshop. If you want information on it, you can head over to the website, which is wanderersphoto.com. But again, this is going to be a crazy workshop with four different instructors, and all the details are over at that website. So head on over there. And that brings us to my guest today. My guest is Boston-based. I think of him as a sports photographer. The truth is it's more sports and commercial and the guy can shoot pretty much anything you want. Damien Strohmeyer. Damien, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And the reason I say you can shoot pretty much anything, I love the, the description that you have in your bio. And I'm going to try and quote here. A photographer who works with people telling their stories in photography ranging from portraiture to fast-moving sports, to documentary news stories. And yet even that, to me, doesn't kind of sum up the fact that you are a long-standing photojournalist. With all the different things you do, when somebody says to you, oh, you're a photographer, what do you shoot? What do you tell them? Uh, two things. One, I tell them I photograph whatever somebody will write me a check for. That's one thing. Oh, I there we go. I like that. And then, um, you know, then the... Uh, the other thing is I, I always call, said, tell people is that I've always considered myself a photojournalist who happened to photograph sports. That, okay. So I, I want to dive into that a second. Why the emphasis, I think I may know, but why the emphasis on photojournalist first? I think photojournalists are, are the recorders of history in our, uh, in our time and that, um, that they play a vital role in, in uh, recording you know, our news and, and reporting our news and, and keeping America informed. I guess a, I guess a vital uh, a vital function in our uh, world of communication. I, I agree with you. And it's one of the reasons I'm a little sad that the world of photojournalism has suffered in years late where outlets have let people go and given iPhones to reporters and have them do the photography stuff. Because I think I think when you get somebody like you with your credentials photographing whatever it is there is a skill level there that that brings a more i don't know what the word i was going to say honest story but the honest isn't the word i'm looking for a more complete story based on the way you shoot what what is your thought on the on the world of photojournalism today well um 
I don't want to use the term circling the drain because that wouldn't be fair because I do think there are people out there that are doing really good work. I think unfortunately a lot of people have been forced out of the business, which is unfortunate. However, I think it will survive and I think it's really, you know, there are going to be a lot of uh, changes in the industry, but re the re recording and the uh, reporting of, uh, of our news is has to remain as a democratic country. We have to, it has to remain. There's like, you can't take it away. So I think there's the future. I'm just not exactly sure how we get to the future, but I think it's going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think no matter what I'm of the mindset that still there's something about a frozen moment in time that will always be beneficial to a society in on many different levels on a granular level and and an you know overarching view level you from a I'm going to use this as a photojournalistic career but you worked with Sports Illustrated for 25 years and is my count correct 72 covers uh the, yeah the 25 years I'm not so sure about it could be 24 it could be 28 I'm not sure I was there a long time uh the covers that's accurate yeah 72 seven so I've had people that have photographed uh, Sports Illustrated covers on the show before. And it's a big deal when they've got two, right? Three covers, you're amazing. You have so many covers and you've shot so many defining moments in sports, right? World Series, World Cup, Stanley Cup, the Olympics, 27 Super Bowls. Do you ever sit back and kind of look at that career in awe of yourself? I don't think you ever should take yourself too seriously. I mean, you know, like it's, uh, it's you know, I, I feel like I'm a competent and, you know, hardworking, industrious photographer um, who has a proven track record of, you know, being able to uh, make the right images. But I, I am much more concerned about how I'm perceived as a family man and as a, as a father and a neighbor and all those kinds of things. It's like, you know, I, I don't try to take myself too seriously. I mean, I, I, I understand I have an important job, but I, right. you know, don't take myself that seriously. I, I, I admire that, but I just have to tell you from the outside looking in, you're pretty amazing at what you do. You do, and not only what you shoot, but you, you have translated your craft into passing it on to others. You do group and individual photo lessons. And as a Canon Explorer of Light, as I mentioned at the beginning, you also do speaking engagements and you teach through being a Canon Explorer of Light. And you, you bring, the fact that you brought up family, you met your wife, who is a photographer <laughs> for the Boston Globe or was at the Calgary Olympics, correct? Yes, absolutely. That's the best. That's the best story. And uh, of all my stories, that's easily the best one, you know, because, you know, we've been married 31 years now. We've raised three children, you know, educated three children. Um you know, it's like really what you stand for, what I stand for. I mean, it's like it's the most important thing in my life, my marriage and my children are, you know, close second. And um, yeah, we, we met in, in Calgary at the Olympics. That was, um, you know, we didn't know it so much at the time that it was going to go that way. We were friendly, but uh, yeah, but uh, it ended up being, you know, something that uh, is always a great source of, of uh, it, interest. It's to just so that, unique. Uh, I mean, you travel all the way to Calgary to photograph the Olympics because your wife is a photographer, like I say, for the Boston Globe. In fact, a guest I had on recently, Estra Suarez, uh, knows your wife, apparently, and thinks very highly of her work as well. So here's the question. There's 
two professional photographers in the same house. So first of all, birthdays for the kids must be a nightmare. But aside from that, <laughs> come on, mom and dad, no more pictures, please. But here's my thing. I'm curious about the crosstalk that happens. Does Do you think your photography in any way influences your wife's and vice versa? Does your wife's photographic eye I mention this a lot. I believe every photographer has their own. When we talk about finding our style, I think every photographer has a photographic eye. That's what they need to find. Does your photographic eye influence her and vice versa? Uh, Joanne is a wonderful photographer. I always, I always say it's really hard only being the second best photographer in your own house. I mean, you know, it's like you're, you're already starting out in second place. Uh, but, um, you know, her style of working is far more documentary and a little more off the cuff than mine is. My, my work is a little more thought out, so to speak. Joanne's a great reactionary photographer, though. She is very, very good at uh, bringing home the moment. She's an assignment editor now, doesn't do as much photography now, uh, but she's a wonderful photographer. And yeah, I trust her judgment tremendously. And, um, you know, that makes for interesting, you know, comments about how you do things. Uh, it gets a little heated sometimes, you know, but not, not you know, it's, it's, we've been married a long time. So it, gets, it usually blows over by morning. Do you, do you critique each other's shots? <laughs> well, not really. Um, I mean, I mean, do you ever shoot but, a shot? Like, 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 take a hypothetical. You're shooting the Super I don't know why I'm going Super Bowl. But you're shooting the Super Bowl and you've got like 10 shots in a series. Honey? Which one of these would you pick? Yeah, some of that goes on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much on sports stuff because uh, Joanne's not a great sports fan, which is interesting because uh, she tries really hard to, because, you know, I'm kind of a sports person, but, uh, you know, it, it's not something that she knows a lot about. But in portraiture, a lot of times I'll say, what do you like? Was it like coming from this direction? You know, like you like it more as a horizontal? Do you like it more as a square? I mean, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, we, we talk about that all the time. Um, and she's a very good editor because that's what she's doing now. So she's a very good editor. Good person. I trust her tremendously. You mentioned she's great at the moment. And, and it's interesting to me because looking at your portfolio, it is full of pictures with – what I would call perfect timing. Like you are so good at capturing that moment. When I, as I was looking through your portfolio, I, I literally had this thought, you know, in the movies where people slow down time, things happen in slow motion, even though they're really happening in real time. And we've all probably experienced that sensation. It's almost to me as though you're seeing these things unfold in front, front of you at a different speed than the rest of us, where you're able to capture that perfect moment. How are you so good at getting that? Well, I mean, experience obviously helps a lot. And But I also, when I came up, I'm going to talk, you know, kind of from a sports angle here now, because that's, I think that's more what you're talking about. Um, you know, I studied the Masters. I studied Walter Yost. I studied Neil Weifer. I studied Rich Clarkson. You know, I studied those guys. I want to know how they did it. You know, I wanted I wanted to see what they did and what, you know, what the what the process was. And and uh, I do think that you know I learned a bit about positioning and game flow and all those kinds of things that 
allow you to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, it doesn't always, the percentages don't always play themselves out, but by and large, uh, if you've done your homework, you're going to know where to be and the, the right place and, and uh, being not only just being in the right place, but also being the right lens, the right, you know, like right. exposure, stuff like that. Although I do have to say the equipment is so good now that they're making a lot of those choices for you. And, and it's pretty remarkable that they can. It's, it's funny that you say that because I just saw a post today from my buddy David Bergman, also an explorer of life. Oh, yeah, Bergie, yeah. Uh, where he was using an R5 or an R6 on the drum riser. He always does a remote camera on the drum riser, and he made a comment that it's gotten insane because with eye focus and face focus and everything else, even though it's manless, as it were, right, it's not being monitored, it's remote, it's it just doesn't miss and it's grabbing it each and every time as far as focus. But you said two things and that is game flow and positioning. Those are interesting to me. If you were to, if you were to talk to those people who maybe aspire to be professional sports photographers, but they're photographing their kid's high school game or even their kid's college game. Maybe they're accomplished at a certain level and want to game up a little bit. Is there a, this topic could go way too deep probably, but is there, is there one tip on either game flow or positioning or for that matter, both that you think would well, help people? I, I could just answer that in football. It's just like a one that I think every beginning news photographer learned mostly from guys who were on the sidelines with four by five view cameras in their day and uh, passed that on. That's a really easy one. 10 yards ahead of a good team, 10 yards behind a bad one. So you're positioning, you know, just really simple. You know, it's now it's more like 30 or 40 yards, you know, because, but when you were shooting a four by five speed graphics, you know, that's about right. You were pre-focused at 12 feet or whatever, 15 feet and hope the play came right to you. I like that. Okay. So now I want to talk about the 72 covers for Sports Illustrated. Thinking about those, if you picture all 72 of those in your head, right? Like that's possible. Okay. You know what I mean? Is there a common thread you think on the images that you've shot? Cause you've shot so much great work. Is there a common thread you think to those that made cover? I think so. And I think, I think one of the things is you have to know who you're working for. You have to know the client. And of course, for me, that client was one group for a long time, sports illustrated people. And really, even from the administration point, you knew, who those guys were, what kind of photograph they liked, what the game telling and game story pictures were so that you had that opportunity. I've always been pretty editorially based and editorially thinking so that most of my pictures have a message. Uh, it's either the right person or the right play or, you know, those kinds of things that have made covers for me. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably the basic, you know, thing is that you have to know you know, where to position yourself for the story that you're working on in right. the vein that um, is going to, in a position that it may put you in the ability to make that cover or that double truck opener or whatever it might be. So in some ways, it's communication. It's understanding through either talking to your editor or your assignment uh, person or whoever you're dealing with understanding really through good communication what is our goal here yeah absolutely. and then That's, using yeah. your skill and your experience 
to simply fulfill the goal. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I always, um, everybody uses the term team now, which, you know, I've used for 35 or 40 years. But that team, starting with, you know, the managing editor maybe of, uh, of the newspaper, trickling through to the photo editor, uh, the director of photography rather, than maybe the individual photo editor who was working on that story. And those people are all, you know, contributing to your information source so we know what we're doing going in. And then uh, if it's a big enough story, obviously, and, and we're working Sports Illustrated thing, you were talking about multiple photographers, sometimes two or three photographers. So we all had to be in sync. And, you know, fortunately, right. uh, I work with a wonderful group of guys over the years that, you know, we we were pretty selfless about how we did it. If one guy got the cover because they were in the right spot, well, that was good for them that week. But I'll get you next week, you know, that right. kind of thing. Friend, friendly competition, as it were. Yeah, so exactly. let's go into this shot then, because that's a good setup for it. And if I'm not mistaken, this shot is called Safe at Home. Is that Do, do you name all of your shots? No, I don't know who named that. <laughs> okay. I, you know, maybe, maybe I call it, it may be that I came up with a name on my own. It's possible. I've done that before. Um, I'll call it Safe at Home. I, I think it was the name of the file or something like that. But this to me is the quintessential baseball shot like this is the shot almost any photographer would want to get but i i don't like that phrase would want to get because would want to get means to me you held the camera up and you pulled the trigger and there's so much more to this photo than somebody just got it right i see your skill level in every aspect of this photo i mean it's absolutely amazing to me so for those that are on the audio version, and before we we dissect this thing a little bit, let me just remind everybody, if you want to see the photo, if you're listening to the audio version, head on over to the website, behindtheshot.tv. I've got, and just find this episode, I've got a blog post I wrote about Damien there, and then a small sample gallery of his work. And all the links that we talk about today, those are over there as well. So for those of you listening, as you're driving in your car, don't try looking at the picture. Not good. Just Listen. I'm going to try and describe this photo to you. And I find this is a great exercise in understanding photography, is verbally trying to describe it. So picture college baseball, Oregon State Beavers against North Carolina, and Oregon State player is sliding into home, sliding around and past the North Carolina catcher. And everybody's feet are in the air. They're all laying down. But they're laying down with their backs arched and feet up in the air. Chalk is in the air. There's a giant cloud of chalk there. The catcher is actually on the third baseline with his feet towards the baseline and his glove and his head towards home plate, right? Glove hand outreached, trying to touch the runner. The runner clearly came around the back of the batter's box, hand outreached, sliding kind of sideways, trying to touch home plate. The helmet is off. The catcher's mask is actually off and under the chest. And here's where this actually excels to me. The colors are scary vibrant and yet completely lifelike. Like I can completely picture being in the stands at this time of day with this warm light, light coming from the back upper left corner, right? Bat laying on the ground in the foreground like just outside the batter's box towards the pitcher's mound. And 
even the wherewithal to get the logo in the upper left corner, just tucked in there nice and neat. The bat is there, like I say, but not clipped, not cut off. None of the highlights are really clipped. This is, there is literally so much action in this shot that you almost feel like as you're looking at it, they're going to keep sliding. Did I miss anything? Well, it worked out pretty good. Um, you know, I, I, one of the pictures you'd, um, you're glad you have it, you know, better than not having it. Um, it's, um, it's right up there. It's as good as I can do. I think, um, this is an interesting picture when uh, they did the book, Who Shot Sports? They highlight this picture in about a three paragraph um, summary, kind of like what you did just now, Steve, talking about the picture and what's all the right to it. And they talk about, but the person that's doing the critiquing is the um, director of photography at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which Oh, I tell people that would be the only time that the Museum of Modern Art and Damien Stromar will be mentioned in the same story. That will not happen again. <laughs> but, uh, but, but he describes a lot of the things right. And then what we're talking about here, you know, you're dividing that picture up. That's the third base line actually becomes your leading line. Uh, we allowed it for the backlight on this. And it was the light was just absolutely stunning that day. But this happened all the time at that event. Uh, the, uh, well, but here's the thing. Series. That, that light is stunning in this photo, but most people would have blown it. I mean, most people would have clipped all the highlights. You happen to get, again, it's what I'm talking about. It's perfect timing. Not only is the third baseline the leading line into the action, but the home plate is the, the backstop to all that action. Yeah. Well, it, again, it's... It, well, let me just back up here. So, you know, when we do uh, these kinds of things, this is a remote camera. I was not viewing this through the camera when I photographed it. I was photographing it with a trigger attached to the side of my camera. In this same um, game, I have two other versions of this picture, one of which is looser and has the College World Series logo in it, and then one that's shot from a third baseline that is more on the catcher. It shows the catcher more. You can't see it as well because it's from third base. But you have three different views of it. This is very typical for uh, us to, uh, to do in a big game to set up remote cameras. And um, <laughs> your rule of thumb is like, if anything can go wrong, it will with a remote camera. It's always a bit of a happenstance thing. And I had a couple wonderful images at home plate over the years at the college world series, this being one of them, another one in the year 2000, it's almost, it was a, a very, very nice photograph as well. But those remote cameras, like you're always, you're, 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 you're hoping they're right. And you know, like we, we're adjusting that exposure for that backlight all the time. I mean, the assistant, I'm going back up there. That's, you know, and saying, no, you need to open it up a third or, you know, close it down a third, whatever it was. So there's a there's a there's a fair amount of thought that did go into this this photograph, and but it's a re, as a result of doing the right amount of homework and also you know calculating those exposures. And I think those of us who learned our sports photography um, on transparency film, you know, this is not a big deal in digital. In transparency, it's a big deal. It's hard to get it all all straight. So I think if so, you had those lessons from transparency days, you know, you're more apt to get the exposure right on something like this. 
So what what camera body was this? Do you remember? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah, it was. I think it was still on film. I can't remember though. It might have been if it was digital. It would have been one of the very first digital cameras. Interesting. But I'm not All sure. Right. I really don't so, remember. So let's. I, I want to talk about the technical side for a second. Okay. Even though this was a remote camera, for what you shoot in this type of a shot, you could have been sitting in this position and taken this shot, and you would have nailed it. And other people, well, I, I so. think, yeah. I, I think people struggle with two things. In this type of light, which is arguably dynamic and harsh, right, at the same time, with this type of light and this type of action, people tend to struggle with focus. So on the cameras that you're shooting today, when you're focusing, do you do single point? Do you do, I know you're obviously Canon Explorer of Light, so you're shooting Canon. They have the five point or nine point expansion. They have zone AF. They have, you know, w w which is your preference? Well, I, I, I do have to admit, uh, experimenting recently with the mirrorless, that I'm uh, – this eye track thing is like, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Uh, it's pretty amazing. But I, I'm generally a one, you know, one point in the middle guy. I like oh, it Oh, and you I'm leave working. it in the middle? You don't move it around? Yeah. Oh, no, I'll move it around. Particularly doing a portrait, you know, I'll move right. it around, you know, with your controls and stuff yeah, all the time. Actually, I've done that for years. Um because I really like, you know, to try to the beauty of being able to move that focus point around is that uh, you can compose in the way we used to compose on a piece of ground glass in a, in a film camera and actually compose a picture. And I think that's one of the things that's been a negative to the great autofocus we have is that, you know, when it was totally always center weighted, you know, the pictures all look like that. They're all kind of too much, not enough rule of thirds and maybe a little bit too much head on kind of stuff. Right. right. But um yeah, that's. Um, I think it's 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 evolving. You know, the mirrorless is evolving and changing things. And you know, as a photographer, that's your job. You got to you know keep up with the technique and uh, like the um, tactical side of things. One of the, one of the things I love about I'm a Canon shooter myself. This is a 5D Mark IV that I'm shooting through right now. Oh yeah, no uh, camera. One of the things I love about Canon is they have focus presets. I'll call them called cases. Cases one through five or whatever for AF sensitivity, acceleration, deceleration, point switching, et cetera, et cetera. Do you go off a of default? Do you run one of those cases? Do If so, do you know what you tend to use or you just kind of go with how it comes? If, if, and this is a big if, um, if, if I were, for example, uh, a newspaper photographer and I was shooting baseball at Fenway Park a lot, you know, like three days a week, right. then I would have a case built for that, for that, a set of custom functions that would fit that, 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 uh, can, that, uh, venue. And we did this sometimes at the Olympics. If you were, for example, maybe you were the hockey guy and, uh, your remote cameras, well, you'd have all those things built in every day. So you have to redo them all the time. But, uh, I've always kind of liked to, you know, get it right in camera. Um, use your technical skills that you already have and not depend too much on the cameras. I, 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 it's amazing what the cameras can do. You know, I never want to lose. A, if I'm going to miss a photograph or lose a photograph, it's going to be because I made the mistake, not because the camera, I have right. too much out of the camera. So, so for shots like this, let's let, again, let's pretend that you were looking through the viewfinder here, right? Do you have any tips for people that are trying to get a shot like this? I, I think some people might even get the moment, but they'll miss the focus or they'll miss the light. 
Any any tips you have for the type of stuff that you shoot to get better focus? Yeah, well, this is a zone focus picture. This is okay. this is actually zone focus because you're full overhead, zone? full yeah, zone, yeah, you're horizontal, and okay. you're overhead. So you know your point of focus is pretty consistent across the frame because you're at an angle that allows you from one side of the frame to the other at probably that's probably shot at f four. I'm guessing maybe five six something like that. And that's going to allow you to keep most everything in focus. You know, uh, if you were hand holding that, that's a little different deal. The tendency would be to um, focus on the runner coming down the baseline. But in this case, he got out of the baseline and slid clear around the catcher. So you might have gotten lucky because the catcher's diving back in where you would normally be focused. But there's a lot going on there for a handheld picture. I wouldn't. No, I don't know why I can't remember what my handheld picture looked like of this play. I know I have it, but it, it's a tricky one because of the light and because of the action is not conventional. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, this is again, this is literally the perfect moment. Where is this camera? Um, well, I think it, this is the old Rosenblatt Stadium. They used to have like a luxury box level, like press box level. And then the local radio and TV from the participating schools would use those rooms to do their live shots and you know, reporting and all that kind of stuff. Well, as the tournament wears on, um, those those boxes open up. So what I, we were always able to do with the NCAA, who you know that you know people that minister the event. We were always able to kind of convince them to look, see what a great shot this is. If we look down this, you know, and they'd say, well, we don't have that booth. You know, we have the booth one to the left. Oh, that won't work. If you had the booth to the left, that line wouldn't be in the center of the frame. So there was some negotiating that went on there well, between the photographers and between and the NCAA. And we were really fortunate because the NCAA saw the value of us potentially getting a photograph like this. So, so um, when you're mounting the camera. negotiation involved and stuff like that. How'd you mount it? Oh, you know, a bunch of that bogan stuff. I don't know. <laughs> like, like okay. you know, you, you can never make too many mistakes uh, when you're doing a remote camera. Safety is like obviously issue one. You can't have a thing fall or get. But yeah, it's a magic arm, probably two magic arms. It's probably a 300 millimeter lens with secured wow. with a magic arm to the body and a magic arm to the lens and then clamped. Um, you know, onto some kind of a, you know, shelf or a, you know, table or something like that that's in that room. And triggering with what, like a pocket wizard type thing? You know, I think it would have been Pocket Wizard, yeah. That would have been, you know, before Pocket Wizard, there was another company, but Pocket Wizard's been around for a while. So I'm yeah. pretty sure it would have been Pocket Wizard. You know, obviously, when I first started at Sports Illustrated years ago, um, we still did remotes like this with uh, – zip cord and you know and and a hand trigger so like you would probably wow. ran three or four hundred feet of zip line to do this a shot like this okay so i i need to understand something you're you're in this booth you're setting this camera up you know you're going to trigger remotely not being able to look through a viewfinder so you're framing it you're framing empty space we talked about having the third baseline in there but again the way the logo is in the corner, you know, the triangle shape that you've got literally touching the corner and kissing the corner, the, the way the chalk line on our side of the home plate 
enters at a rule of thirds and then peaks on the right. It doesn't exit because it comes back down, but it peaks as though it would be going out a rule of thirds. Um, again, there's so much here. So when you're when you're framing this on an empty area, what what are you thinking? Well, again, we did multiple cameras in the same location. So this was the tighter of that angle. And then we did a looser one of that angle. Okay. The looser one is always kind of your backup, see, because like you can't, you know, if, if it's loose, you know, components are more or less, are less likely to fall out of the frame. So, but if you're tight, you know, then you're rolling the dice a bit more about what, you know, you don't, you don't want to cut off extremities. And this was very fortunate. We're really close on some, but we didn't cut any off. But yeah, you, you kind of got to work in tandem. You got to be thinking about, okay, if I've got this camera at home plate, maybe I should be thinking about another camera for second base from a simple angle different, you know, just so you have everything covered. Um, I, so, yeah, it, uh, it, you know, you, you roll the dice after you have the sure shot, you know, if you've got, right. you know, because I actually remember, and I don't, wouldn't be able to find it very easily now, but I remember the loose picture of this being really good. It had the College World Series logo around the bottom, and it was right. it was nice. It was a it was a good look. But see, you just said something though. Had that runner's foot on this shot exited the frame, totally different shot. Totally right? different. Yeah, and uh, for that matter, we wouldn't even need to exit. Had the runner's foot gotten ever so too close and too tight, it would have killed the you know the old saying in in photography nose room right somewhere for them to move into. It would have really killed that you could picture him sliding. So when you're triggering this, is it triggering automatically as you shoot the camera you're holding? Are you manually triggering this remotely? Um, well, this is a good question. I think I remember how I did it. I'm pretty sure this is how I would have done it. I would have taped the trigger to next to my trigger on my camera. And then what I would have done, and this is like, I did this for a long time, um, you would essentially, by using pocket wizards, you would make your handheld camera a remote. I know that sounds weird. So you run a trigger up to your, up near your shutter release on your camera. Then you run a, a pocket wizard out of that to uh, back down to your, another pocket wizard will send a signal to your camera. So right. you have the remote, which you're following remotely, but then all the, that are not just the two remotes that are over there on pointed down. They're also firing the one in your hand. It, it's very, it, it, it seems like it shouldn't make any sense, but it does, but it, it's, it's not conventional. Um, it's pretty conventional now probably because people have gotten figured it out a little bit more, right. but um, yeah, that's, that's, probably how it happened well and, I, and digital has made remote cameras so much more practical oh yeah sure yeah, uh you yeah. know by by leaps and bounds but again the lighting here is the other thing so the lighting is from the back and left and yet the runner's face is totally clear right when you are whether you're presetting a camera like this one up in a booth and walking away which you know, my heart would be pounding the entire game thinking, oh, please come out, please come out, you know. But even if you're just holding it, I'll, I'll admit it, there's no way I would have gotten probably, well, I might have because I shoot live music. So I'm kind of used to radical dynamic light, but still, what is your baseline 
when you know it's, you know, looking at the shadows on the ground, like their feet are in the air, but they're, you know, only a foot or two off the ground. And yet they're casting long shadows. This, this light is low in the sky. When, when you're photographing a dynamic light scene like this, is there a baseline for exposing that you go by? Well, I mean, again, this goes back to the transparency era in which, you know, you really had to know what you were doing. This was a small window of light that happened at a game that started, I think it started at 8 o'clock at night. I think I always had a game that started at 8 o'clock. When at 8 o'clock in uh, June in Omaha, Nebraska, you still got some light. You've got it's low, and it, but it's not going to last for long. This would have been in the first inning, I'm pretty sure. So interesting. You know, a lot of that has to do with okay, saying you're you're setting up, you're going to all this work at the stadium at you know one thirty or two o'clock in the afternoon to start setting up these cameras for that night, and really not even for the whole night, probably just for the first two or three innings. After that, the light's going to be gone. You're just going to be shooting like a night game. So, you know, it's like one of those things like where you feel compelled to put the effort in just because the possibility, particularly with this light, is so great that you want to take that chance. Well, but with you shooting for an outlet like Sports Illustrated, which is media and press for all accounts, this is photojournalism, right? When you turn a shot like this in, do you edit it yourself? Do you turn it into them and they edit it? Sports Illustrated, we always just turned it over to them. Um, And they do the editing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Are there exceptions to that with other stuff you shoot, like Olympics or something? Um. Not with Sports Illustrated, it never was. There was never really put much exception to that. Uh, with other clients, it depends on what they what they want. I mean, a lot of times, you know, if you work with a less experienced person in an art department, you know, they may want you to work on it as much as they can, you know, because they're not experienced in doing it. But um, one of the things that, like, uh, like I always try to emphasize is that to me, I mean, I, I like, you know, I'm pretty technical and I don't mind talking technique. But it's really the moment that matters. It's the moment that matters. That's, you know, it's like if I blew the exposure third of the stop, you know, well, whatever, you know, we'll get it back in post, hopefully. But that moment, you know, has to live. It has to be active. It has to be something that really tells the story. So let's talk. Let's talk post then. In a scenario, if you were editing this, what would you be limited to? Cropping, dodging, same as a traditional darkroom, cropping, dodging, burning, color correct. That's about it, right? Yeah, that's about it. You can't do much in, in, in journalism. It's just a bad idea. You know, you really need to keep represent what was there. And and when you edit, what software do you use? Um, I use Photoshop pretty much. I mean, I'm trying to convince myself to do Lightroom a little bit more, but, um, you know, I haven't yet. I still pretty much Photoshop. Photo Mechanic yeah. to Photoshop, you know, nothing too complicated. I would have guessed Photo Mechanic. Photo Mechanic yeah. was, was a recommendation to me like three times by friends of mine. And oh, I don't know, you know, Lightroom does my culling. Once I went with Photo Mechanic for my culling, everything changed. The speed of which I can turn a job around just cut in half. It was that fast. So let's do a speed round here really quick. And for these questions, there's like five of them. Just answer whatever comes to your mind first or whatever you think the best answer is. So first of all, top fast action photography tip. Be ready. That's the number one. Got to be ready. You know, position number two, position yourself in the best place you can to make the best photograph that you can. That seems a little generic, but think about it in a more generic way. And that's what it is. Um, 
you know, know your gear, you know, no fumbling around out there, you know, trying to figure out how to work your camera and don't bother me if, if your camera doesn't work either, you know, like that's your responsibility to know when you get out there. So yeah, take, know your gear, know how to use it. Um, you know, be nice. <laughs> like, you know, like, like I, you know, I, I try to be polite and nice to everybody that I, you know, security guard, cheerleaders, whoever. I just think it's like you're representing somebody. You should uh, try to try to do that. And what, I, one I, more. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one I completely more. agree with you, by the way. And that is yeah. when I'm in a photo pit at a concert, I say hi to people. Hey, who you're shooting for? You're going to see these people again. Number yeah. one. But you yeah. mentioned security. And I just want to say, in case anybody from security is watching, when I photograph a concert, some of the first people I say hi to are the security people. Yep. Their job, I would argue, is A, more difficult than mine, and B, more important than mine in many cases. Yep. So, yep. yeah, I agree. And being ready, by the way, knowing your gear is part of that being ready, as yep. is leaving your phone in your pocket and not being texting when the moment is happening. You know, that's everything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's your favorite sports lens? Sports lens? Yeah, 428. Yeah. 428, no doubt. Yeah. Okay. Heavy lens. Wow. Uh, oh, not the new one, though. It's like, seems light compared to the old ones, you know? It's like, it's good. Yeah. What app, like mobile app, can't you live without? Well, I am not a huge, you know, mobile app person. So I, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. My son works for Instagram. So that, that would be probably the one that I, you know, reference the most. Okay. And half shutter press for focus or back button focus? Back button. Okay. Favorite, you know, there's a million compositional rules out there that we hear about. What's the compositional rule when you look at your photos that hits you first? That, that's the most important to you. Yeah, I'm really upset with myself if I'm if I'm not if I'm too center weighted. I mean, I, I you know I'm I'm a, I should be a better photographer than that as long as I've been doing it. I, I should know better to put the person in the center of the frame. Okay, so stay off. So you're thinking rule of thirds then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Basic. Yeah. And I should preface this: you can say your wife if you want to on this one, but you don't have to. Okay, you don't have to. She, she's probably in there listening to all this stuff. So yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and the funny thing is, she can't hear the questions; she's just hearing the answers. So you could say something like horse jumping, and she would not know what you meant, which could be fun. Uh, honey, why did you say horse jumping earlier? So here's the question: Who's a photographer or artist? that people may not know about that you think they should? Well, I, you know, I just saw someone today and he's a new Canon Explorer of Light and I'd never seen his name before. He's in Los Angeles. He assisted for Andy Bernstein for a while. And I think maybe have you had him on? Atiba? Yeah. Is that who you're going to say? Yeah. 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 Really he's talented been on. kid. I mean, really good. Seems like he's got a wonderful disposition. Doesn't take himself too seriously. And one of the things that I've been saying for forever, God, we need more people of color, you know, and that's, uh, he's, I, I think he's, a, you know, he's not an up and comer anymore because he's already there. I mean, but somebody that, uh, you know, I think has got a really bright future and I've never met him. I have no idea who he is. I mean, I he just, is the nicest guy. I, he ended up on this show for the same reason you did through our mutual friend, Scott, uh, uh, that deals with Canon Explorers of Light program. And I was not, completely aware of Atiba myself. Atiba assisted. He was a, a second shooter for the Lakers during the Shaq and Kobe years. 
but he is well known in the skateboard world, like at a very high level in the skateboard world. And I love what he shoots for kind of the same reason I like what you shoot. He has an ability with his subjects to capture that moment, right? That, that moment that makes you feel like you're standing there and watching it. And that to me, just like what you shoot is absolutely magic. So I want to remind everybody that everything we've talked about and you've seen lower thirds popping up under Damien as, as we've been talking, if you're watching the video version, but if you're watching the audio version, I do want you to be able to connect with Damien. So Damien, what's your website? www.damienstromeyer.com. Okay. And just so that yeah. people know it's S T R O H M E Y E R Damien D A M I A N. Uh, Instagram, yep. it's Damien Stro, just the S T R O H. Yep. Uh, LinkedIn, Damien Strohmeyer, fully spelled out. And Facebook, just a dot in between the first and last name. That's correct. Well, sir, it was wonderful to meet you. All the links, again, in the show notes at the website, everybody. And Damien, thank you so very much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Steve. I enjoyed it. Believe me, it's been my pleasure. And again, everybody, if you head over to BehindTheShot.tv, you can see a small bit that I wrote about Damien based on his bio and my research on him and a small gallery of his work. You can do that with every episode that I do. If you want to find out how to subscribe to the podcast, there are links to virtually every way you can subscribe there at the website as well. If you want to reach out to me, that's easy too. It's stevebrazel.com, same as the country Brazil, but two L's. If you want information on social media, Twitter or Instagram are where I generally spend my time. It's at Steve Brazel or at Behind the Shot TV. Again, thank you so much. Make sure you join us next time as we take a look inside a photographer's mind by looking behind the shot. 